It's time for the 7th Avenue Project online at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome, everybody, to our first show of 2013. And yes, uh, those of you listening over the last month have heard a lot of repeat programs as we dipped into the archives down the home stretch of 2012. But I recently promised something new for the new year, and today I am delivering. It is a conversation uh, with the musicologist and musician and filmmaker Ben Harbour. Ben is a guitarist and composer. I've played some of his music under the closing credits of this show in the past, and he is currently an assistant professor of music at Georgetown University. But uh, before his recent appointment at Georgetown, he was a Ph.D. student in ethnomusicology at UCLA, and while working on his Ph.D., he shot a documentary film called Follow Me Down, Portraits of Louisiana Prison Musicians, being screened this week in Santa Cruz. I'll give out more details of the screening later in the show. Ben spent several years making the documentary, meeting and filming inmate musicians at three prisons, including one of America's largest and most famous, Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known as Angola. And we're going to start off the hour with some of the music he recorded at Angola, and then we're going to hear from Ben himself. So Ben, we're listening to some singers here. Can you tell us about them and describe the, the scene in the movie in which this takes place? This is a scene out in the field uh, behind the dormitories. It's the uh, group called the Pure Heart Messengers, which is made up of four uh, guys at Angola who are all lifers. Uh, They're all sentenced to life. They have all done at least 20 years in prison. There's probably 100 years of time done among the four of them. And they're singing an old style of gospel, a quartet style. You don't hear that much anymore. They're singing a style of gospel that they actually learned at Angola. They were R&B singers on the outside. And when they came to prison, uh, they got interested in singing gospel. All of these guys learned from a guy named John Taylor. He's an old school gospel singer and really the, the godfather of the Angola gospel scene. Well, this is a legendary prison. Uh, it was originally a slave plantation and then became a prison back in, what, the mid-19th century? And this is a place where a lot of music has been discovered. Uh, you know, the, the great folklorists John and Alan Lomax visited there in 1933 um, and recorded. Uh, among their discoveries there was Huddy Ledbetter, uh, otherwise known as Leadbelly. But the, the sense of Angola as this world apart that has preserved these folk traditions that are dying out or have died out on the outside. Did you expect to, to make discoveries like that? I had very few expectations going in other than that I was sure that people were going to be playing music. I mean, most of the guys at Angola are from New Orleans. New Orleans is one of the most musical cities in the nation. What makes the music at Angola uh, distinct is that they're singing for reasons that relate to their incarceration. They're still singing work songs out in the field, but they're not singing these old work songs that, uh, that the Lomaxes found in, in the 1930s. They're singing Otis Redding songs. Uh, they're singing R&B songs. So there's been a lot of update in terms of material, but the way that people sing, the reasons that people sing are, are still the same. Uh, in fact, Leadbelly was the, the go-to entertainer of the prison. That's why the Lomaxes found them. Uh, nowadays, the Pure Heart Messengers are the main entertainers at the prison, and that's why I found them. Mm-hmm. So there are, a lot of, there are a lot of similarities to the 1930s. What was it like to actually just stand there in the prison yard in Angola and record these guys? And, and as our listeners just heard, these guys can really sing. I would imagine that it did for me the same thing that it does for these guys. Uh, it takes you outside of the prison. 
so uh, when I usually meet guys like, like this, uh, my first question to them is, what's your sentence and what's your conviction? And so within a minute, I get from their disclosure that they had murdered someone or, or a rapist or, or something to being mesmerized by their music and to flip in between those two experiences of looking at somebody in terms of what they did to get in there and then being caught up in their music is a powerful thing. And if it's powerful for me, then it's got to be powerful for them as well. You know, there's, I think there's two schools of thought when it comes to people working in the prisons, documenting or, or running uh, educational programs. One is don't ever ask them why they're there. Uh, you know, it's, it's too intrusive. And the other is always ask. It, it sounds like you're in the, the latter school. Yeah, I'm in the latter school uh, for a few reasons. It's more powerful to step outside of that in watching a film because so many of the films that we see about prison dwell on the reasons that they're in there. Uh, we want to look at, uh, at why a criminal ticks. So there's, there's, one, there's one kind of film you could make where you would relate their musical expression to their criminal expression. But then that gets caught up in our American obsession with deviance and, and the source of violence and incarceration. I wanted to get out of that. I didn't want to play this game of, of trying to find out why someone commits a crime. I wanted to find out why is music important? And, and the two conflict. Uh, so I was really trying to get beyond that. But it's important to state that because if I had removed the fact that these guys are inmates, that they're in for a long time, that they committed terrible crimes, uh, we forget we're in prison because that's what music does. Music can take you out of prison. And it would just seem like we were in some sort of summer camp where everybody would want to go and listen to this great music that was going on. Uh, so it's, it's important to flip back and forth between these experiences of, of meeting a, a convicted criminal and then experiencing their music. A lot of the uh, inmates at Angola, again, otherwise known as Louisiana State Penitentiary, uh, and it has a population of around about 5,000, mm -hmm. are lifers. They're there for their natural life. Um, some of them will leave in a coffin. They actually make coffins there. They have a coffin right. building shop. There is a cemetery there. Some will not even leave after they die. Uh, they'll be buried there. So a lot of the music that you recorded is about the afterlife, mm -hmm. including the one we just heard. In fact, here's the four members of the Pure Heart Messengers talking a little bit after that song. It means I'm just, just singing it. I mean this. It's by faith that I sang this song. I got a blessing coming. My deliverance is right there. I know it got 12 gates. And out of them 12 gates, one of them is mine. <laughs> That's all I need to know. <laughs> 12 gates? Yes. Yeah, yeah. 12 yeah. gates. Yes, indeed. We got about 100, about 212 gates here, <laughs> but I got 12 good gates. And I'm going to get to one of them gates. That's one the of them gates is mine. <laughs> and we can hear, um, again, these four singers talking about their hope that you know, after they're dead, uh, they will be redeemed. Uh, one of them talks about the 12 gates uh, and that he's going to enter one of them. That comment of the, of the 12 gates and 212 gates is, is a key point. I, it's a bit hard to get when, you've, when you first see it. And I, and I meant it for that. I, uh, there's, in the film, there's a lot that I don't expect anyone to get because I want you to have that experience of being an outsider somewhat. But to unpack that a little bit, that's really a key of how these songs work. So the guy says, uh, there are 12 gates for me to get into heaven. And then he says, but there are 212 gates here, referring to 200 gates of the prison and then the 12 gates to heaven. Uh -huh. And then by conflating all of those gates right there, that's, that's somewhat of how the spiritual music works there as well. They're doing double work with it, in a sense. In one it offers them hope of actually being released. And second is the hope that I think anyone participating in gospel for spiritual reasons would be um, uh, praying or worshiping through song in that sense. But when you hear these guys sing about how their hope is that at least when they leave this world, they'll be in a better place. They'll achieve freedom through death. It's a powerful thing. Um, it's incredibly sad but you become witness to the one glimpse of hope that they have. 
my sense is that the Louisiana penal system does not offer a lot of hope in this life, um, that when you're sent to a place like Angola for life, it means life. Right. In 1973, uh, Louisiana passed truth and sentencing laws, whereas life sentence meant 10 years and six months to life beforehand. Uh, the law shifted to being life. Basically, you need a pardon from the governor to get out of, of a life sentence unless you have parole, and then you have to go through a parole board. But those are very difficult things to achieve, to get through there. So 95% of the guys who are at Angola uh, never leave. They die there. With such odds against you getting out, uh, you need some sort of hope. And music has a capacity for giving people hope. What's your feeling, uh, Dan? I mean, there, there was a time in American justice, criminal justice, when there was more emphasis on rehabilitation and return to society. I mean, for a long time, even first-degree murder, a sentence might last 10, 20 years, and you, you know, if you evidenced good behavior and genuine remorse, you might be released and start a new life. These days, that's far less common. Uh, certainly in a lot of states, you're sent away for virtually all of your life or all of your life or, or sentenced to death. What is your feeling then about that trade-off between an idea of actual redemption in this life via uh, reform and rehabilitation uh, versus uh, <laughs> what's offered these prisoners now? I have to separate myself a bit in answering this. On the one hand, I want to answer it as a, as a musician slash music scholar. And uh -huh. on the other hand, as, as an American citizen. Well, do uh, both for me. As a citizen, I feel like if we are spending the effort and the money to be able to put people in prison, um, wouldn't we expect some sort of payoff? Wouldn't we expect that we make someone better? Or if we have someone and we can make them better, send them out earlier than, than we normally would. We don't have a system that does that. And I wish we did because it's extremely expensive. States can't afford it right now. Um, we're incarcerating people and in many cases making them worse off. Uh, they leave with mental illness if they didn't have it when they went in. And they leave with the burden of, of having that on their record. It's very difficult to get a job as an ex-con. So something needs to be fixed. Yeah. As, as a musician, it's, it's really less about prison in a way than it is about the promise of the arts. Wouldn't it be great if a lot of these guys who found some sort of epiphany or found some sort of social relevance or some way of participating in their community, wouldn't it be great if music gave them that before they committed the crime to get in there? If they had a music program in their schools where they gained a handle on their emotions through musical activity or found a way to talk to other people that they didn't have before, found a community, found a, a way that they felt like they were valuable or find that they loved something in the world. Uh, wouldn't that be great? You know, you've raised, uh, I think, a question that probably occurs to people who advocate and, and teach arts in the prisons. I've also witnessed some of these programs in the prisons and met inmates involved in them in music and theater and writing and seen exactly what your film shows, people who seem at peace, people who seem socially capable, you know, who get along with each other, who are pleasant to be around, who don't seem frightening or scary in any way, in part because of their, their relationship to the arts that they've discovered. Uh, the question is, if you had given them those programs or if they'd had that relationship before they committed their crime, would it have had the same effect? Or, or was something about the punishment necessary for them to become the seemingly you know, better adjusted person they were afterwards? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think thanks to the Arts and Corrections program in the California prisons and the, the effort and the study, the self-reflection of the people running that at William James and all the other programs that contributed to Arts and Corrections. Uh, I mean, there, Larry Brewster did a study that showed that, that music does have an effect, that it has a measurable effect on behavior. Uh, there are less infractions, uh, written up infractions for people who are involved in the arts programs, uh, less recidivism. Hands down, music does, does benefit 
people uh, in in prison. Now, did people have to um, learn the hard way? Right, learn the hard way. Yeah, I think one of the effects of having our criminal justice system removing people is we don't witness that this is actually part of our world. That people do terrible things in our in our world. We wish they wouldn't. We try to stop. We try to stop it as much as we can. We try to mitigate the effects. But, but this happens. People do stupid things. Uh, people are violent. People are desperate. And we need to find ways of dealing with that. We need every tool within our arsenal through uh, drug rehabilitation programs to vocational programs to school. And the arts fit in there, but they fit in a unique way. They fit in a, in a way that, that can't be replaced by other things. So, yeah, people learn the hard way, and, and that's always going to be there. Yeah, um, I should explain that the Arts and Corrections Program, uh, AIC, was an arts program in the California prisons um, that actually got quite large up to the 1990s uh, and had uh, resident artists in every one of the state prisons in California. Uh, it was quite a success in many ways. You referred to a study by Larry Brewster, the sociologist, who uh, determined that inmates who took part in that program and then were subsequently released had lower rates of recidivism than uh, inmates who didn't take part in the program and were released and also seemed to have fewer behavioral problems in prison. Uh, But AIC, Arts and Corrections, has been eliminated more or less uh, in the last 10 years as California has, you know, run into budget problems. Right. And you are listening to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Today I'm talking to the musician and musicologist Ben Harbert about his new documentary film, Follow Me Down, Portraits of Louisiana Prison Musicians. The film is going to be shown this week in Santa Cruz, this coming Friday, January 11th, at the Rio Theater. It is part of a benefit for the William James Association Prison Arts Project. You may have heard uh, Ben mention the William James Association a moment ago. It's a nonprofit here in Santa Cruz that helped create and run the Arts and Corrections program that we were just discussing, and uh, which is working to bring back arts to the California prisons. You can learn more about the benefit and the film screening at williamjamesassociation.org slash events. That's williamjamesassociation.org slash events. And now back to the interview. Let's listen to a- another piece of music from your film. You mentioned earlier that the real uh, you know, leader, godfather, inspiration for some of the uh, gospel singers in Angola Penitentiary is a guy named John Henry Taylor Jr., who is 39 years into a life sentence, or at least was when you when you met him. Uh, and he'd sort of stepped out of the scene and wasn't singing, but I think partly through your your presence and your intervention, you got him to sing again with the Pure Heart Messengers. And here's a, a little clip of that. My friends of say. I'm acting strange, oh, but they just don't They just don't understand now In my life There's been a change I am looking for a better name. Yeah, I have a home now. Come on, be in the sky. Home where no storm clouds. Never I have a I'll keep on living after I die. Oh, 
Am I right, Ben, that you were instrumental in getting this guy who is looked up to by a lot of the other singers in Angola to um, to sing again? Yeah, he had dropped out for maybe 17 years and just plain stopped singing. And that was really intriguing to me because I'm not only interested in, in music in terms of what's alive now, but why did why did some styles disappear? Why don't people make music the way that they did? Those are important questions. And for, for him, one of the things that he found so important about music is that he was able to have relationships on his terms through playing music. It was somewhat of a sanctuary within the prison where he could have musical relationships with people. He could mentor them. He could learn from them after he taught them by uh, participating. That got shaken up when some people came into the music scene who started using music to gain attention on themselves. This is from his perspective, from his account. Uh, certain people came in who were trying to leverage the uh, attention that music got to try to get in favor of the administration or to try to um, bask in their own glory or, or whatever it is. And that outside motive really turned him off and he dropped out of the music scene after that. And he's really um, recalcitrant. He really, he's a real stubborn guy. <laughs> uh, yeah, you include a scene. Um, in fact, I think it's the only scene in which you actually appear. Right. Uh, and you're talking to him, and he's decided not to sing for you. And, uh, and then he changes his mind and, and sings a little bit. Or one of the guys gets him to change his mind. And then later, he, he gives the full-blown performance in the chapel, the prison chapel that uh, we just heard a bit of. Um, but you, as an ethnomusicologist, I'm, I'm guessing, with the recording equipment right there, must be utterly thrilled, right? Right. Right? Yeah. At the same time, you know what you're doing. You're recording people who are essentially caged, mm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And uh, don't, aren't going to walk away into a nice life after the recording's done. So are you feeling ambivalent during those times that you're, you're plundering in a way? Uh, no, you forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's true. You forget, you, you, you forget, you forget about it. And, um, there, that's the power of, of music. And it's powerful for them too, because that's through music. They forget that they're in prison through music. I forget that they're in prison and that I'm in prison. Um, there was a there was a moment when I was leaving Hunt and I was with Clay Logan and um, Warren Scott, who were two of the main featured young younger musicians who play in a rock band at Hunt. I was leaving the prison. My son was about to be born, and the three of us were talking on our way out, and we were having this really collegial conversation where they were giving me a hard time about how I wasn't going to sleep and I wasn't going to. You know, I was going to have no more time and what a big deal with uh, this change in my life was going to be. It was the same kind of conversation I was having with my friends on the outside. And, and here we had this rapport where we could do this. And I walk out and the gate closes and I say goodbye to them. And I had this moment where I just all of a sudden was it's like it was thrown in my face that these guys are in and I'm out and they'll never experience having a family. They'll never experience so much of what I experience in life. And we forget about that through our focus on, on music. And I think that that's one of the things that's so important about music is it can, it can create this other space of relationships. Um, so I'm not dealing with these guys in terms of their conviction. Uh, these guys deal with that every day. They deal with that every moment. Yeah, you, you referred to Hunt, which is Hunt Correctional Center, another prison uh, in Louisiana. We've been talking mostly about Angola, but you actually visited three prisons, um, Angola, Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women, and Hunt Correctional Center. And the person you're referring to, Clay Logan, is the president of the music association at Hunt. Is that right? Yeah, for some time he was, he was president of the music association. And he's also was kind of a celebrity um, uh, convict in uh, Louisiana because in 1996, as, as he tells you in the film, he had a fight with his parents and ended up killing his mother. And that was obviously a, a very highly publicized crime at the time. He was 16 when it happened, and he's been in prison ever since. 
Yeah, I was going to ask you about him because it, it just brings probably uh, more than any other uh, instance in the film brings you face to face with the actual act that landed these guys in prison and the, right. the strange contrast with these very pleasant, likable guys who you meet. Honestly, there, there, there was nothing in, in the way he acted in the film that would tip you off that this guy was in any way... Deranged? Deranged, aberrant, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, we get that in movies. I mean, all of this comes from movies. We think of the criminal mastermind, which we'd probably put him in the category. If I were making a feature uh, fiction film using these guys, I would probably cast him as, as a uh, criminal mastermind because he's extremely smart. He's very articulate. He's a leader. He's a natural leader. For, for someone being in prison, he has a lot going for him. <laughs> and yet he committed this crime that I can't even imagine. I, I mean, I, I could imagine um, these guys who were in for drunk driving. I can imagine these guys who are, who are in for getting into a fight at a bar. I mean, I've never gotten in a fight at a bar, but I can get that stuff. Um, imagining someone killing their mother, I just, I can't do it. I, can't, I can imagine being angry at my mother, I suppose. But... I can't do that. So what do we do? In, in fiction, we resolve that by making them manipulative masterminds of, of crime. The Lex Luthor. He would be great in that role, but that's not who he is. And that's not who most of these people are. We focus on inmates as, as criminal, that criminality is the defining characteristic of them as people either, in this case, the criminal mastermind or the common criminal, someone who just suffers the, the burden of, of being uh, deviant in some way. When, in fact, most of the people are in prison are in there because they did really stupid things and they got caught. In Clay Logan's case, uh, his family situation got so out of hand, he happened to have a gun, um, and he walked in and he shot his, he shot his mother and killed her. Uh, would he take it back if he could? Yeah, from my conversations with him, yeah, he would. So when you actually meet inmates, you realize that they're not a separate breed of human. They're people who've done terrible things but are still human beings, and they still have the capacity to, in most cases, have the capacity to, uh, to joke, to move, to connect, to empathize, um, to sympathize uh, just as any other human being would. Some of the most poignant scenes in the film take place in the woman's prison, Louisiana Correctional Institute for Women. Uh, one of them is, is a scene you shot through the bars of a cell of a young woman singing her heart out. And I'm just going to play a little snippet of that. That was Christy Nelson singing uh, Sam Cooke's A Change Is Gonna Come from your film, Ben, uh, Follow Me Down. Did you just stumble on her? It looks like sort of an impromptu performance. We stumbled on her. We were going through the women's prison, and I just started asking staff members if there were any new singers who would come in. That was a day where people were being processed. So new inmates come in, they spend about a week or two in uh, lockdown. And she was such a good singer that her reputation from the parish jail uh, had preceded her. So people were expecting that this great singer was going to come. Uh, so the staff actually helped identify 
that she was there. And she was an incredible singer. We had a very brief conversation, and then she just sang that song. It was just the thing that was at the tip of her brain when, when, uh, when we had walked in at that point. Um, and in fact, I keep that moment where she says, during the interview, where she says, I was about to cry before you came in here. She had just gotten to the prison four hours in and said it was already hell. Uh, she'd been sent there for, I guess, selling pot, mm-hmm. uh, sentenced to a year, and was freaking out. As you would. Yes, as I would. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> oh, man. But shooting that through the bars, in watching her, I was reminded of you know Maya Angelou's book title, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I mean, it's it's painful to watch. It really is. You know, I mean, there's something so unequal in the relationship between us, the viewer, and the person who's performing for us. Yeah. And there's a look that she gives at the end of that where she she gets out of that experience of performing. And she's an incredible performer. But she ends her performance and her her demeanor changes and she gives this look into the camera that's this hard look. And it says so much. It says so much about our relationship that I'm outside, she's inside. Um, we're behind the camera, she's in front of the camera. Um, it's It's this look that acknowledges the power differential but between us and i thought that that in a film that's really important that that we that the audience needs to see that that this is a voyeuristic uh exercise that that we have the power to watch her ben you totally nailed it because that's exactly how i felt i felt a little bit unclean you know enjoying her music well that actually that that comes from um that's an idea that comes from fred wiseman's film Titty Cut Follies, which is was shot at the Massachusetts, I think, uh, prison for the criminally insane. Um, and there's a there's a shot where there's this guy naked in his cell, uh, dancing, doing this dance around. And at one point, he looks and locks eyes with the camera, and instead of turning away or editing it out, uh, Wiseman zooms in, and you meet this guy's eyes for a while. And it was so powerful to me as a as a viewer and a student of film. Yeah, you're referring to Frederick Wiseman, the great documentary filmmaker. Um, Titicat Follies right. dates back to what, the early 70s or late 60s? Yeah, I want to say late 60s. Um, there's another scene that you included in the film that has really um, nothing obvious to do with music at all. Again, in the woman's prison, it's some women sitting outside on the ground, each with a little potted plant, and they're being you know, sort of instructed on taking care of this plant, which is the only pet they're going to have in prison, I I suspect. Um, Talk about that scene. The Ivy Mathis, who is a member of the women's choir, one of the leading members of the women's choir, uh, she's, she's involved in the prison as what's called a big sister. So she looks after a lot of the, the young women who are coming in and deals with a lot of the people who have mental illness. So she's, she's really a leader. Uh, she's been incarcerated since she was, I think, 16 or 17. She's in for life, second-degree murder. And uh, she is a, is a major leader in the prison. As one of the programs that helps uh, the, the women with mental illness, uh, they have this horticulture program where they grow plants and they take care of plants. And it's, it's aimed at trying to pull people out of depression or, or other mental illness that they suffer. And mental illness is rampant in women's prisons. There, there's, there are more cases of mental illness in women's prisons than there are men. So on the one hand, I wanted to show that because these are some of the saddest women that you see. Yeah. Um, and they're talking about their plants and naming the different stems after members of their family who they, who they don't have contact with, of course, because they're in prison. And throughout the film, I wanted to balance the hope and excitement and, and escapism that music brings. But I wanted reminders in there that we're in prison. And so to me, that was a, that was a moment to be reminded of the place and show the place without music. Then there was a, there was a little poetic work as, at the same time where later in the film, Clay Logan... Uh, at Hunt Prison talks about this metaphor of, of a plant and a flower. And mm-hmm. he looks at music as being this, uh, this growth, which you don't get in prison much. There's very little growth that happens. And he says, um, 
that he relates music to a flower and in the case of a flower it blooms and it smells good and in the case of music it sounds good and attracts people's attention and you can see your own personal growth from it so i wanted that that um that metaphor of development and cultivation to ring through as well with that moment you know the the women you interviewed a lot of them, interestingly enough, the, the charges they were in on were armed robbery. Uh, more than once, that was the, the rap that sent them to prison. But, you know, uh, me watching at the distance I met, I just saw them as, you know, sweet girls, you know, and I mean that yeah. affectionately, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, there was something just touching and, and vulnerable about all of them. Yeah, there, there is. I mean, in, in part, we're seeing them out of context. Uh-huh. Uh, who who knows when when people return to their communities or in their old friends with the same situations they had when they went into prisons in some cases worse because now they're ex-cons. Uh, who who knows who they are outside of there? Yeah, yeah, you're 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 doing a good job of correcting my bleeding heart uh, interpretation here. Thank you. <laughs> right. Well, there are a few things. I mean, there are a few things that 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 I think need to be spoken. And uh, you know, it's yeah. an open film, so it's I, I don't want to qualify it in the film or you ruin it. <laughs> But there's an aspect of, of of this idea that oh, people once they're in there, they're they're well adjusted and somehow have have already arrived at some epiphany of how to be in the world, and thanks to music, they're better people from it. Well, that's not always the case, and when inmates want to present themselves, usually they want to present themselves in the best light possible, and we do it on the outside. I'm doing it right now. I'm <laughs> I'm not. I'm not revealing all my dark innermost <laughs> problems and, and issues and anxieties. I'm, I'm, we, we present ourselves in the best possible way. And so that comes across in the film as well. Now, that said, um, I can speak for, for a number of these women. Consuela Thomas, for instance, she's in for armed robbery uh, or attempted armed robbery. She tried to break into the prison where her husband was being held and tried to break him out. And she was uh, convicted of attempted armed robbery of robbing the Louisiana state of her husband. Wow, um, wow. And she, it's, a, it's a stupid thing to do. It's a terrible thing to do. I mean, uh, um, it could have gone worse than it did. And she has a 47 year sentence for trying to break her husband out of prison. Um, so, and yet you see this woman who cares deeply about the young women who are entering there, uh, who cares deeply about preserving the, uh, the choir. Yeah, we should say she's the choir director right. at uh, this woman's prison and is very maternal uh, yes. toward these, these lost young women who come in. Uh, and you have a clip of her singing, uh, Precious Lord, beautiful singer. Uh, she mentioned armed robbery, and I was trying to picture this woman we're seeing in the film doing an armed robbery, but... Uh, a prison break. That's even more dramatic. Oh, that's what I told. That's how I found out about it. I told her when we were walking to another place. It was off camera. And I said, Consuela, I have such a hard time imagining you attempting to rob someone with a, with a weapon. And she told me the story. And um, that's a story I'll never forget. Uh, uh, she'll, she'll get out of prison when she's 70 years old. She'll never have children of her own. Uh, who knows what she'll do when she gets out. She did a she did a really stupid thing. And it's hard not to, um, I guess I have the luxury of focusing on music, so I, can, I could table all of those issues to a degree. Um, emotionally, it stays with me, uh, but I don't have to necessarily resolve. Um, I, can, I can feel a sense of injustice, but I don't have to get into it to that, to, to that degree. And perhaps that's a cop-out. You're not on the parole board is what you're saying. Right. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is easy for us to talk. The people you met, like I say, seem extremely likable, harmless, like they should be given a second chance. Of course, they're in a circumstance uh, in prison where if they had a problem with impulse control, well, it's being controlled for them, exactly. more or less. Uh, who can say what would happen on the outside? But um, thanks for, for being a realist, uh, <laughs> if I get too romantic about all of this. Um Everybody we've talked about so far, except Clay Logan, uh, and almost all the people depicted in your film are black. Yeah. Is that representative of the actual demographics of the Louisiana prison system? Yeah, I think in the men's prison, it's somewhere around 80%. At the women's prison, it's 60%. What do you make of that? There's a, there's a great book by um, 
illegal scholar named Michelle Alexander called The New Jim Crow. And she has a pretty strong argument about how the, how the prison system has taken over a lot of the role that Jim Crow had and slavery had before. It's easy to be simple-minded about it enough to say that the prisons themselves are going out and incarcerating blacks at a higher proportion. Um, whereas Alexander's book nuances it a bit and shows how there are other, um, there are other institutions that all contribute as a part of mass incarceration that has a racial imbalance and takes people out. Um, and it's a powerful book, and I recommend everybody to read it. Um, I think the new edition has a foreword by Cornel West. Uh, race plays a part in the way that we incarcerate people. There's no doubt about it. Um, it's, it's imbalanced, and there's no doubt about that. I mean, there are, more, there are more drug users who are white than are black, but we incarcerate more black people who are drug users than white. Mm-hmm. Um, because we monitor them and we're scared of it more as, as, as a society. Um, we, 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 there are four black young men driving in a car together. There are more assumptions that they're part of a gang than a bunch of high school buddies than if they're white. Uh, there are perceptions of criminality that are linked to race that are very deep in America. Um, there's the irony with Angola, which has been remarked on a lot, that it is was once under slavery a plantation and is to this day this gigantic, uh, uh, largely agricultural operation where guys are still sent out into the fields to work. Actual cotton fields, right? I don't know. I don't think they're doing cotton anymore. The, the, the labor, the crops have changed, so the, the conditions are much better than they were before. I'm writing a book about... Um, music at Angola from 1933 to today. Oh, really? And it's in, yeah, and it's interesting to see how the work has changed. Um, thanks to reforms, they're not out there from sunup to sundown working and uh, running to drink a little water, but they're still working in the line crews. They're just out there singing different songs, but it's still doing the same work. They're doing timed labor where they're working in a line, except they're they're growing okra and, and corn and soy and things like that. So not necessarily cotton. Okay. <laughs> no, no, but it's, I mean, it's striking. This is, this is the thing about going to Angola is it's, it's striking because you see, you see guards on horseback and black inmates working in the field. And it looks a lot like it did in, in 1933 from the images that we have from when Lomax was there. No striped suits or balls and chains, but Right. I think at that time that the striped suits had come back for a little while now. Now the striped suits are, are a thing of the past. Um, but the ball and chain, you don't need it at Angola because the three sides are surrounded by a bend in the Mississippi. And then there's a 26-mile stretch of woods on the fourth side. So uh, whether you have a ball and chain on your leg <laughs> is not going to matter because you, it's a very hard place to escape from. But, um, but it does seem so anachronistic on one level and it does seem like a recapitulation of slavery but we have to be careful of jumping into that what keeps that around is that the corrections at louisiana have had a theme of self-sustenance since the very beginning that the prisons must pay for themselves and so a lot of the work at at angola it's very rich farmland goes to producing a lot of the food that that feeds inmates we should say that the form of this film it doesn't have a narration uh, it is simply you and your camera crew who aren't shown mostly, uh, you know, sort of dropping in on various performances and various inmates who sing, perform, or talk about themselves. And the feeling is that you were able to sort of flow through these prisons, these three prisons we mentioned, uh, without a lot of restrictions. Is that a, an illusion or did that really happen? Uh, for the most part, it did happen into varying degrees at each prison. Uh, there is more media access granted to people at Angola. More media want to go to Angola. Um, so I probably had the most oversight there. Uh, the prison that I had the most freedom was the women's prison. Um, and I think that's in part because most people don't care about the women or women inmates. And because of that, they're not used to a media presence there. So that's why we were able to get into lockdown at the women's prison. Uh, they wouldn't let us in lockdown at the, at the two men's prisons. Uh -huh. But that, that said, I had a fair amount of access. 
And that's in part because I kept the terms of my being there uh, directed very squarely to what does music do and what is music doing in the prison. Uh, you know, so far we've heard some inmate performances uh, that were gospel or church music, and we heard you know, a pretty spiritually tinged song by Sam Cooke, A Change Is Gonna Come, but you have some other genres in there as well. There's a little bit of rock. Um, there is some country music, and I wanted to play uh, a country music singer who you recorded. And this is a kind of haunting scene at the end of the film. This guy's name is Alfred Rose, is that right? Mm-hmm. And he's singing into a payphone. Let's let's just hear what he's singing. Ain't nothing special about this special breed. Ain't no glamour in the life I lead. Small time rodeo and women are my trades. But I wasted love and every dime I ever made. Racing the wind I go on and on. I keep drifting like a rolling stone Nowhere bound That's where I'm headed The road I'm going down Most men dread it Still I go on Lost from town to town, knowing damn well I'm nowhere bound. I know damn well I'm nowhere bound. So that's Alfred Rose, who I should say uh, looks to be blind. Yes. And he's actually singing into a, a prison payphone at Hunt Correctional Center, right? Right. Tell me about this guy. Alfred Rose was refreshing because he was more of a realist than a lot of the other guys. Uh, when you come into a prison, you interview these men and these women. They're not necessarily being honest or truthful. They want to tell you that music has been a way that they've found themselves, that they're better people from it. I mean, there's this rhetoric of rehabilitation that gets in the way of a lot of truth. So Alfred intrigued me when I met him because he talked about how much he hated everybody else who was playing music <laughs> at the place. And he thought they were all a bunch of clowns and that they, they were unprofessional, that they, uh, that they were focused on aspects that weren't real. And I realized that what this guy cared about with music was its ability to remove all of the rest of the people away out of his life. Uh. And so he, he sings to be by himself. Uh, he's doing Life Plus 20. And he's in for aggravated rape and burglary. Uh, he was a singer. He was a country singer. And he was blinded by someone throwing bleach in his eyes at Angola. And having a sense of Alfred, he probably just really ticked somebody off and they went to the lengths of blinding him in retribution. So he was transferred to Hunt because Hunt has better facilities for dealing with disabled people. And he doesn't read Braille. He, doesn't, he never developed those skills of being blind on the outside. It's hard to develop skills in prison. So... He's a songwriter, and he's written something like 400 songs or something. Something. I mean, I haven't checked it. I haven't heard all of his songs, but he's been immensely pro prolific. Um, but he's blind. He can't write them down. So he calls a girlfriend in Texas and sings the songs over the phone for her. She records them, writes them down, and copyrights them for him. Oh, what do you know? I was really curious why he was singing into that payphone. Didn't seem to be a conversation he was having. Uh, he sort of hangs up really quickly right after he finishes his song. So that explains it. Right. It's inaudible what he says at the end. And basically he says, is that okay? And uh, you got it or something. He hangs up the phone. I wanted a little mystery left at the end. Yeah. And so that we experience, we, we have some insight into who they are and why they do it. But we're, we're not going to have all of it. And it's such a bizarre scene of this guy singing into a payphone 
you know, why is he singing? And, and to me, it's more important that people are left with questions than necessarily answering them. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I suppose that then gets back to one of my feelings about the way we incarcerate in general in this country. And we seek to define criminals to such a degree that when we see someone in prison, we, we're always looking to master them in a certain way. Who are they? Why are they doing what they're, what they're doing? I mean, everything from, the, from uh, psychiatry through our criminal justice system to labeling them to containing them uh, is all about using knowledge about these people to, to pacify them, to incarcerate them, to keep them away from us, or to rehabilitate them in some way. And so to step outside of that game of mastering individuals leaving some mystery and just letting them do what they do and not knowing is a powerful experience because you expect to know, know, we expect to know our inmates, whether they're fictional or real. Really interesting, Ben. I, I wondered at that because he was a mysterious figure compared to the other inmates. Um, one more question for you. Uh, you are not just an ethnomusicologist, a guy who studies these phenomena. <laughs> You're a musician. <laughs> you play guitar. You compose, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how did this experience affect you as, a, as an actual practitioner of music? It made me realize some of the reasons that I value music. And, you know, I believe that whenever we do, whenever we do anything, there's, a, there's an element of ourselves in it. And... Uh, I'm no exception in making this film. I focus on things that, that matter to me as a musician, as a human being, as a citizen, as whatever. But I, I see myself a lot in this. I've found community through being a musician. Playing music allowed me to talk to people in junior high where I couldn't before. Playing music gave me hope of meeting girls. Um, playing music uh, gave me a, 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 a sense of peace and, and quiet and transcendent from all of the things I was going through in school in the moment. And, and so I suppose that in, in making this and reflecting on it, it has enabled me to see in more detail why music matters to me. Um, ben, I haven't asked you about the title, Follow Me Down, the title of your film. Follow Me Down is the first line of St. Fannin Street by Lead Belly. Lead Belly, a once resident of Louisiana State Penitentiary, Angola prison. So I, it's a somewhat of a reference to Lead Belly, Follow Me Down. Uh, but then it also resonates just in a poetic sense that, that the term down is what people use for being in prison. So they say, I've been down for three years. I've been mm-hmm. down for 20 years. So down also is, I guess, prison slang for, for how much time you've been in prison. Um, and then follow me is really what I want people to do. I want people to follow them down because we can't follow them down usually. So the film allows us to follow these people into their lives and what their lives are in prison. Ben, thanks so much. It's been great talking to you. Thank you. Ben Harbert's new documentary film is Follow Me Down, Portraits of Louisiana Prison Musicians. And one of the people that Ben thanks in the credits on his film is his former Ph.D. advisor at UCLA, Tony Seeger. Tony Seeger is a well-known ethnomusicologist, the former director of Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, and a member of uh, what you might call the first family of American folk music. His grandfather was the pioneering musicologist Charles Seeger, and his uncles and aunts include Pete, Peggy, and Mike Seeger. I asked Tony about his reaction when uh, Ben first came to him and described his plan to document Louisiana prison music. First, I thought it was a tremendously interesting project. Um, we have, you know, I, I'm quite familiar because actually my uncle Pete Seeger did some recording in Texas prisons in the 1960s, I think it was. And uh, other people had done recordings. The Lomaxes famously had done recordings in the 1930s. And so we, we, we had a, a really interesting set of recordings of what prisoners were singing as they worked in the old uh, prisons where, where prisoners did outside physical labor in farms. But then the whole subject of prison music had dropped below the horizon. Once people weren't singing the, the work songs anymore, um, no one seemed to be asking, well, what were they doing? And Ben's interest in it and also his ability to get clearances from the prison systems to actually get inside and do films, um, it, it was a real pioneering effort. And, and I thought 
would, would open up really interesting alleyways and, and understandings. And what sort of advice did you give him? Well, I said, listen to them. I think one of the most important things we, we can ask people to do when they do research is to, to leave some of their preconceptions behind and uh, really talk to the people and learn what, what moves them and what makes them um, dedicate their time to music and also their, what, what their values are that, that lead them to treasure that kind of activity. The title... that, and that comes out really well on the film, I might add. Yeah, the, the title of the film is Follow Me Down, and uh, the subtitle is Portraits of Louisiana Prison Musicians. And, mm-hmm. and, and that's what it looks to be, a series of portraits of people and their music without narration and without any sort of explanation from the filmmaker. Right. That, that came out of a whole philosophy of filmmaking, of course. It doesn't just happen. He wanted you to, to get a feel for the person. And rather than telling you what music was doing in their lives, really have them explain it themselves. And he was remarkably successful in getting footage that that actually gives them a chance to do that, and they took advantage of the moments they had to do it. You know, there's this uh, longstanding concern in any form of ethnography, whether it be ethnomusicology or documentary filmmaking, uh, that you have a person... In a, in a position, in a sense of power, going in and capturing a specimen, that is, an image or a representation of some other people somewhere, and that you might be exoticizing them, that you might be dehumanizing them, that you might be collecting them in a way that is reductionistic, you know. Uh, and this goes back to the whole history of the encounter between so-called Western civilization and other cultures, you know, for centuries. I think that someone going into prison and documenting, let's say, an art form like music, even heightens that potential problem because you've got a captive population, right, who in a sense are in a fishbowl. You can go in and film them in their confines. Um, I know Ben was concerned with that. Uh, Did you and he talk about that when he was doing this work? We talked quite a lot about that particular problem, and um, it's he didn't go into it unconsciously, and it actually takes up, I think, two or three chapters of his dissertation address uh, the, the very issue of what it means to be in a prison, which is that other people can look at you all the time. Yeah. And um, filmmaking is a kind of doing that. And, and I think you, you can't change that when you're making a film in a prison. I mean, the prison exists and the people are in it. Um, what you can do is, by your awareness of it and by your attempt to let them tell their own stories, rather than making up a story into which they fit, um, you can uh, sort of give them some control over that. And the other way you can do it is to try it out on people. And he has both shown this film in, in some of the prisons and also shown it in public events where people who have been in prisons have commented on it. And in all of those cases, have appreciated what he did with the film and have spoken favorably of it. When you sing, you make yourself vulnerable in some way, um, especially if you're uncertain of your skills. And there are a lot of people in Ben's film, some of the women, for instance, trying out for the choir in the women's prison, who are very unsure of themselves. Mm -hmm. So people who in that environment might normally be extremely guarded, self-protective, open up when they start singing. Yes, I think it's, it's quite daunting for people to actually audition, for example. It's daunting anyway, but it's particularly daunting since you're having to live with those people 24-7 for years. And yet they do, and I think that's... And, and it was a very supportive environment generally for them in, in the film, at least. Perhaps one of the reasons that the, the music is so important in people's lives when they're in prison is it, it's a place where they, they make themselves vulnerable and they aren't taken advantage of, but rather taken in and... and um, and collaborated with to make something together as a group. There's a long history of ethnomusicologists going to prisons, um, starting, as far as I know, with the father-son team of John and Alan Lomax. Were they the very first? Mm, That's a good question. Actually, people were commenting on singing in prison a a lot earlier, but in terms of early early recordings, it wouldn't surprise me if if John and Alan were among the first, because it was fairly cumbersome equipment you had to take in. it was heavy and uh, required a fairly large uh, 
infrastructure and obviously permissions and things like that. And then you mentioned to me that your Uncle Pete, the famous Pete Seeger, actually did some recording in Texas prisons, and there have been others as well. Where do you see uh, Ben's work, uh, the film we're talking about, fitting into that, that history? I think part of its significance as a, as a dissertation and also part of its importance as a film is it, it brings us up to date on, on, on the music of the people who, who are imprisoned in this country. And we, we can no longer sort of imagine it to be the work songs of, of 70 years ago. It really is different. The prisons are different. The lives of people in them are different. And, um, and I think given the large size of the prison population and the virtual ignorance of the music that they make and the role of music in the people's lives in prisons, uh, I think it's a really groundbreaking film. I think it's a very important film. Follow me down, follow me down, follow me down by Mr. Tone. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly signing off for this week. And you can always visit us online to learn more and listen to past shows at 7thAvenueProject.com. When on Vine Street Sunday gonna be the death of you. Ooh, I didn't care.